Well, have you made any good trades lately? Any good trades? We're always looking for something better than what we have. It, it goes back as early as when we were kids. Do you remember the grade school lunch change exchange? Remember coming in with your bag and your friends into the cafeteria? It's noisy, everybody's sitting around the table, some were buying, I always brought my lunch. I knew what was my lunch, it didn't have my name on it, but it had a picture of the sun. My mother called me sunshine, or she calls me sunshine. So I definitely wouldn't have this facing out to my friends, I'd turn it this way. It meant a lot to me, but I, I didn't want the others to know. But you remember that? Every, you couldn't hear what your friends were saying, but people start pulling out uh, things in, in their lunch. And, and I didn't pull this one out often because mom always uh, made things. and was a good baker, especially with cookies, and I wouldn't trade those away. But every so often, I would get one of those hostess cupcakes. Yeah, that's right. Come down later at the end. I'll give whoever wants the hostess cupcake. But you get one of these, and all of a sudden, you'd hear my friends go, oh, Bob. I'm, I'm uh, Bob up north, Rob down south. So, Bob, I, I haven't had one of those in like 24 hours. I'm, I, I'll trade you my whole lunch for that. And then I'd go, um, whole lunch, huh? And sometimes I'd have to trade because what would be in there was the dreaded, and, and I shouldn't have dreaded it because I love it now, but you remember when your mom would make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich but do it on homemade bread? Remember that? Look at the size of that thing. How do you even wrap your mouth around that? So I would, I, some days I would need to trade my whole lunch because of what I had in there. We, we are used to making value assessments in life even now, with our time, with our stuff, with our relationships, with our careers. We look at things that we think have value and we'll hold on to the things that we do think give us value and we'll let go of the things that we don't think are valuable. And this goes on. In one way, it's pretty accurate to say that we are all treasure hunters. We're on a lifelong treasure hunt. Now, my treasure may not be the same as your treasure, but when we come upon something of value, we got a decision to make, and we decide. Well, we're going to come upon two people today in a story that come upon the most valuable thing, and we'll see what they do about it. We're in uh, actually the third message in the series called Summer at the Lake. What we want to do during the summer is look at the Sea of Galilee. It's a place that Jesus spent a lot of his public ministry on or around this lake. And so we want to look at it. What things went on here? Now, to give you a size, you know, just kind of give you a little word picture of the lake. It was in the northern hills of Israel, 700 feet below sea level. It was it is 12 miles long, north to south. So from here, it would be from Durant Road, go all the way up to 96, Youngsville area. That's how long the lake was. And then width-wise, it was between four and eight miles wide. That would be from here, take Durant over to Six Forks. There's four miles. 
And if you could keep going on Durant all the way over to Creedmoor, that would be eight miles. So that gives you an understanding of this lake. It was, oh, 80 to 160 feet deep. But Jesus, his mission, a big part of it was on and around this lake. And so what we want to do is we want to look at three areas over the weeks here in the summer. Let's look at encounters that Jesus had. We did that in the first week when John was here, St. Pastor Crossroads. Last week, we looked at miracles. We want to look at miracles that Jesus did around the lake. And then we also want to look at teachings, some of the teachings that Jesus did. And we're going to do that today. We're going to look at his teaching through parables. And as we do that, I do want to get Bibles in your hands. So ushers, if you would come down at this time, if you don't have a Bible, we would love to get one in your hand. Uh, if you don't have one, this is a gift from the church to you. Go home with it, please. Uh, if you just need to borrow it today, you can simply take it and drop it in the back on your way out. So a large part of Jesus' ministry was done through parables, though he wasn't the first one to use parables. You see him in the Old Testament, and you also see him in writings of the time. And for our sake, just think of a parable. There are different kinds, but just think of it like a story. It had a beginning and an end, and it has a plot. Also, think this way. If you have to explain or interpret the parable, it, it, just, it like destroys its, what it was intended to do originally. It's like when somebody has to describe a joke or interpret a joke. This happens a lot at my house. On a Sunday, we get the paper for coupons and comics. My wife, Kim, loves the comics. And I'll hear her belly laughing about something. And she comes in, you've got to read this. Look at this. And she's waiting with anticipation. And I'm like, she's like, you don't get it? I'm like, no. Well, blah, 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 blah. And it just loses it, right? It loses its whole meaning. The, it, the thing with the joke and the thing with parables is that it, you're supposed to immediately connect with the story. And so parables had this real sense of realism to them, that the people, the hearers that heard that story would connect with it. There were actions that were familiar, sowing and harvesting a crop, writing in, uh, or extending a wedding invitation, baking bread, lighting a lamp. These are things that the original hearers, bam, they connected with that. They connected with the people in the stories who performed those actions. Merchant, widow, farmer, father and son. There was a sense of realism that they connected with the story. And, and Jesus used parables. He wanted two things to happen. We need to keep this in mind. He wanted two things to happen when he was teaching through parables. The first is there was a point to be understood. There was a truth that he wanted to convey. He wasn't trying to keep it a mystery. We do read about the mystery of a parable, but that was for the people whose heart was in the wrong place, whose their heart was hard and, and would be rejecting the message of Christ. They weren't going to get it. It was going to remain a mystery. But Jesus wanted people to get the point. The other thing he wanted to happen, and this is important, when they heard the point of the parable, he also expected a call to a response, something to happen because you heard that. 
that somebody who was hearing that would so connect with the people, the actions in the story, that they would take that home and their life would be different because of it. He called them to a point and also a response out of that. And today we have two parables that go hand in hand that we're going to look at and kind of pass through this lens. First one's in Matthew chapter 13, verse 44. And Jesus is talking to the disciples right now. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that a man discovered hidden in a field. In his excitement, he hid it again and sold everything he owned to get enough money to buy the field. When you see that phrase, the kingdom of heaven is like, it's what they call a kingdom parable. There are lots of them. Look in Mark and Luke, look in Matthew 13 around it. You'll see the kingdom of heaven is like, that's a kingdom parable. Now you may have seen it as the kingdom of God is like, and, and know this, you only see that in Mark and Luke. Matthew always says the kingdom of heaven is like. But for our purposes, they're the same. The kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven, it's the same. And the only thing we have to watch out for is we don't want to read as if the kingdom is like the first thing that we see in the list. We're not supposed to do that. The audience wouldn't have done that. What, the best way for us to read it is like this. It is like this with the kingdom. It is like this with the kingdom. That forces us to look at the whole story. That's what the original hearer would have done, is to look at the broad stroke, not just that one thing. And so they would have connected completely with this story, especially about the buried treasure. We may not grasp that, but for them, Palestine, that whole area had been under attack. And the safest place for your stuff was to hide it. Except they didn't have banks back then like we do, so there's no safety deposit box. The earth was your safety deposit box. As men went out to war, they would take their valuables and go out in the field and dig it and hide their valuables. And if they died in war or they never came back, then that field became a field of a hidden treasure. So the reader, the person hearing that, would completely connect with this idea of finding or hiding treasure. You see references in the Bible to this discovery of valuables in the earth. Job in the Old Testament, when he was cursing being alive, he said this, they, the misery and bitterness, long for death and it won't come. They search for death more eagerly than for hidden treasure. Uh, Solomon in Proverbs, when he's talking about the most precious thing you could gain is, is wisdom, he says, cry out for insight and ask for understanding. Search for them as you would silver. Search for them like hidden treasures. And then in Matthew, we see this one. Later on in Matthew, you also hear of a servant who got a bag of silver. And what did he do? He dug it and put it in the earth. Those hearing the story would connect with that. And so we have this field hand who's out doing what he does every day, and he's plowing and he hits something, and he looks down and he dusts it off, and it's the hidden treasure. And he, it says, uh, what, that he, in his joy, he covered it back up and hid it. Now, when I read that the first time, I got a little tense, and maybe you feel it because that's not the point of the, the parable, but what bothered me was, it seemed like an ethical dilemma. 
right? Here we have this servant. He comes, he finds this, and what he found really should be the owner's, right? The owner of the field, that treasure is his. But those that were hearing this would have never, ever thought about that because the rabbis had rules for ownerless treasure. If you came upon a, a, a hidden treasure like that, you just had to be sure not to lift it out. Because the moment you lift it out, now it becomes, by the rabbi's laws, the, the owner was the owner of that treasure. So notice, so this field hand does what everybody else would have done. Careful not to lift it out and just hide it. There would have been no point of contention at all. We may feel it, but those hearing this did not feel it at all. Furthermore, if it really was the owner's treasure, he would have dug it up before he sold the field. So that, that we shouldn't be bothered by that. There's no ethical dilemma at all. But this field hand makes this discovery and now has a decision to make. What does he do? Does he take action or no action? Now imagine if he didn't take action at all. Could you tell him, uh, like down the road when he's sitting with his grandkids, he's retelling the story, right? Oh, you should have seen it. It was like a day like every other day. But I came upon that treasure and, Grandpa, what did you do? Oh, well, I, I kind of brushed it away, confirmed my findings. I know, but after that, oh, I just covered it up and I walked away. No, did you go back? No. It would have been crazy. Nobody would have done There was something that was so life-altering about what he found that he took radical and extravagant response to that. I wish we had more in there about what went on at home, right? Could you imagine the scene at home? Honey, hey, hey, get the keys to my Ford Mustang. I'm selling it. Give me your diamond ring because we're going to pawn that thing. I'll go over to CarMax, get rid of the car. Give me your ring. I'll go to, there's a pawn store somewhere over there. I'll get rid of that. While I'm gone, put all the furniture out on Craigslist. And when I get back, I'm going to put our house on Remax and we're going to sell it. We're going to, and the wife's probably going, um, honey, that is everything here. You're trading everything for this treasure. I know. But notice, we think like, oh my goodness, how could he do that? He must be like, oh, I gotta get rid of Mary. Look at scripture. Look what it says. With excitement. Some of your translations will say, with joy, he did this. So what's the point of the parable? Parables have points. What is it? I can tell you what it's not. This story is not about buying your way into the kingdom of heaven. It's nothing like that. Actually, the parable is about recognizing the supreme value of the kingdom of heaven. That there is nothing more valuable than the kingdom of heaven. If MasterCard were around back then, you would re you'd see kingdom of heaven, priceless. It's that precious, that valuable. And so this parable, that, that's what it's saying. Nothing more precious than, and valuable than the kingdom of heaven. Let's look at the next parable because they go hand in hand. Does it give us any more insight on the point of the parable? Look at verse 45 of chapter 13. 
Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant on the lookout for choice pearls. When he discovered a pearl of great value, he sold everything he owned and bought it. Once again, you have a response. This merchant who, who knows the value of a pearl, for, for those hearing it, pearls, once again, it connected with them. We may think diamonds, but diamonds were around, but they were rare. So they weren't even part of the culture. They knew pearls. It was what they got. It was of the utmost value to them. So they got that. Now we see this merchant who knows his stuff. He comes upon this thing of value and he does the same thing. He takes uh, the same action. Again, I wish I could read what went on at home. He probably had a yard sale and a house sale so that the quickest he could get the money that he could go and purchase this pearl. The parables have the same point. And that is there's nothing more valuable than the kingdom of heaven. For them, the hearer of this parable, that's what they were to hear. That is what we are to hear. And for me, it raises the question, well, what is the kingdom of heaven? If it's that valuable, tell me what it is. What is it? It depends who you ask. If you ask Jesus, he had a different idea of what the kingdom of heaven was versus the Jewish leaders and the people at the time. Completely different. Jesus was fulfilling a promise, talking about a promise from the Old Testament. And it wasn't a place. It was about where God reigns and rules. Jesus is talking about the kingdom of heaven is wherever God is king. And the leaders and the people there that day, they were thinking in an earthly rule. And Jesus is thinking more of a, an eternal rule that starts now, but goes for eternity. And Jesus' idea of the kingdom is universal in scope. It isn't limited just to the Jewish nation. There's complete difference in understanding. Jesus was ushering in something new. It wasn't an old religion. It wasn't some vague hope that was in the future. Jesus was talking about the, the here and now. If you study the parables in Matthew 13, the kingdom parables, go in Mark and Luke, you'll look to see that Jesus talked about them this way. He says the kingdom of heaven is already and not yet. There's this thing about it's partially fulfilled right now already, and a not yet. We think, ah, just later on. This whole kingdom stuff, it's for later on in our life. When, when we get closer to checking out of here. But it's about, when you look at those parables, the thrust of all of those parables tend to be in the already. The kingdom is already here and now. Look at Mark chapter 1, verse 15. Jesus is saying, the time promised by God has come at last, he announced. The kingdom of God is near. Repent of your sins and believe the good news. Jesus is saying the kingdom is partially here right now. And it's going to go on to eternity. And he wanted them and us to hear that, listen, someday you're going to step into eternity. And you need to be connected. I need to be connected with God. And you're going to need a savior. 
Because your sin is going to separate you from God. It does separate from you. And guess what? Here's the good news. You read it in, in Mark and all. I'm the Savior. All you have to do, come, follow me, believe in me. There's an urgency about the hour. Come, everything is at stake. And you look later on, he also does this. He's not only talking about eternity. He also says that those who believe in him, when he goes back to be with God the Father in heaven, he promises the Holy Spirit, the power of God, will come and take up residence in Christ's followers, in Christians, those who believe in him. The power and the reign of God in Christ's followers, ruling their hearts here and now. The kingdom is an already and a not yet. And these two parables are saying there's nothing more valuable than the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. Life in Christ. There's nothing more valuable than that and all that you have available to you through Jesus Christ. But there's a slight difference in the parables. Slight, slight difference. And it's how the characters stumbled upon their treasure. The first one came upon it accidentally. That field hand had been in that field many times, plowed the field probably the same way over and over again, and that one day he hit it. He hit something, that treasure. And you see in the Bible people who have stumbled upon the kingdom of God in that way. Look at Levi the tax collector. People hate tax collectors then. There's no way Jesus is going to show up at his door. But guess what? So he wasn't expecting. Jesus goes to the tax office and says, Come, Levi, follow me. Levi stumbled upon the kingdom. The woman at the well, read that account. She stumbled upon the kingdom. Many of us have found the kingdom of God accidentally like that. Maybe it was a crisis. Maybe it was uh, an addiction, a behavior that drove you to your knees. You had, uh, there's got to be something stronger than myself. And you found the kingdom of God accidentally. Many of you came back to God accidentally. There was nothing that you were doing on your part, but for somehow you found yourself back here accidentally. And there's some of you that don't know him as king yet, haven't submitted your life to him, but you will do so actually accidentally. You could. But there's another, you know, the other difference is the merchant, he didn't stumble upon it accidentally, right? He was intentionally searching. He was a merchant. He knew what he was looking for. He was going in search of that most valuable thing. And maybe that's how you came upon the kingdom of God. You were searching. I know I was. John the Baptist, he knew. He was on the lookout. All of a sudden, Jesus shows up in line to be baptized by him. He knew that he was coming. And many of you may have found Christ in that way. And some of you who haven't submitted your life to Christ yet are, are searching. It's part of the reason why you're here. Maybe you asked a friend, hey, I'm looking for a church. Or you saw the sign. You are searching. We have two people here who discovered the most valuable thing. They did it two different ways. And now they're forced with the decision to trade everything that they got. And the truth is, every uh, discovery calls for a decision. It doesn't matter in what. It, it, you know, all your different fields. But spiritually, the same thing is true. A discovery calls for a decision. 
the Apostle Paul, he was a persecutor of Christians. He stumbled upon the kingdom. Actually, God pushed him down. Um, so he, he accidentally came upon the kingdom of heaven. But there was something so precious, so radical about what he found that it caused him to make a decision that completely turned him from one who was a persecutor to one who was now not only a follower of Christ, but the mission leader and early church planter. He completely reoriented his whole life around this when he stumbled upon the kingdom. And then later on, he said these words, Paul, Philippians 3, I once thought that these things, meaning if you back up, is his human credentials, I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when it's compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage so that I could gain Christ and become one with him. You see, Paul knew what life's most valuable goal is. And that is to know God and know him personally. To Paul, Jesus is of infinite value. To him, Jesus always satisfies. He knows what it's like not to have, but yet he was content. Jesus, and while he's in prison, somehow Paul could say he, he, he's refreshed. His soul is encouraged and hopeful because Jesus gave him that hope. Yes, he gave him eternal life. He is saved. He has salvation through Jesus Christ. But get this, scripture also says, in the here and now, life in Christ helps it be more abundant. Abundant life here now is available through Jesus Christ. There's nothing created that will ever be able to match that. Money can solve problems. Absolutely but it will never solve our deepest problem. People and relationships with people are important. It's spiritual. Love God, love others. But people will disappoint or you will disappoint others. But Jesus will, will not fail you. And Paul discovers the kingdom and the preciousness of this kingdom. And it may, he, he makes a decision to radically reorient his life. And so we come back. Have you made any good trades lately? You come today, I come today, and there's things that perhaps we hold as the most valuable. Or maybe we're in going in search of, if I could have this thing, then it would be of the highest value. It can be. It can be status. It can be your career. It can be stuff. It can be your health, your marriage. And it's not that those things are bad. Hear me about that. It is the position that they take in your heart. When those are elevated for a spot that only God was intended to hold in, then it becomes a problem. We have to ask ourselves this question. What am I holding on to that I believe will give me value? Because here's the thing. If you want the kingdom of heaven, 
if you want the kingdom of God, if you want the Christian life and all that is available in the power of Jesus Christ, then you've got to be willing to let him be king. And that's hard sometimes to look at that trade. I don't know if you're sitting there going, whoa, I can't compute that trade, Rob. I can't speak for you, but I can say to share with you why I was willing to make that trade. I was one of those who searched for the kingdom for a long time. I experienced a lot of guilt and shame as a, a young kid. I also was a very anxious kid. And I tried a lot of things to calm that anxiety, and I never was able to get something that satisfied or uh, stop the thirst for what was going on in there. But one day, 1982, there was an off-duty fireman who sat with me and shared the kingdom of God. And I discovered what that was, and I stepped in at that moment. I made a decision to follow him. But here's the important part. That was important. I have salvation. But here's another important part. I have not stopped making discoveries and decisions about my relationship with Jesus Christ. I have my salvation. But you know what? As soon as that went through, I found out God and his love and his grace and his mercy said, Rob, you know what? You're a people pleaser. And you know what comes with people pleasing? Is fear and anxiety. And you've elevated people to that spot. How about you let... How about you do this, Rob? Love me, and I'll help you love others. And so, folks, all I'm trying to say is I've spent the rest of my life, and I will continue to do that till I get to eternity, of making that. I like to think as a kid you play king of the mountain. Remember that? He's teaching me where I'm standing on the mountain, and I'm discovering that, and I have a decision. You have that spot. And it can be in any one of the areas that I, I rattled off just a little bit ago. And I have found, and I, I know you will find the same thing as you do that, that there is no person, place, or thing that can satisfy like Christ does. No created thing. Only he can do that. There's nothing more valuable than the kingdom of God, than a relationship with Christ and all that is available to you in him, where he rules and reigns. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you so much for your word and for the truth that we really were meant to be in your kingdom. And I just pray for you know, me and others here, uh, one, to, to have the promise and the peace knowing that they are saved, that if they don't have a savior, that they will uh, accept your son, Jesus Christ. But even from that point, that um, those Christ followers, and myself included, that we would continue to discover more about you and decide more and more for you and let you um, be king and rule and reign in our life. I love you, and it's in your son's name I pray. Amen.